It is 9.30, 78 degrees. That's time to move our microphones to St. Paul Lutheran Church in De Pere for this morning's Bible study. Welcome all who are with us this day, both here in the gymnasium of St. Paul's Lutheran Church in De Pere, Missouri, and also our radio listeners join us over KFUO, 850 AM, and also through KFUO.org, really worldwide. This is the first Sunday that we are here in the gymnasium for this class, so maybe just a word of explanation for those who are new to this study. What we've been doing for the last couple of months here is going through the scripture lessons that will be assigned for next week in church. So not today's assigned readings, but the Old Testament lesson, the Gospel lesson, and the Epistle lesson for the coming Sunday. I'm Pastor Glenn Thomas, one of the pastors here at St. Paul's. The other teacher primarily in this class is Pastor David Smith, our senior pastor here at St. Paul's, and this class is called the Pastor's Bible Study. So with that as some introduction, let's begin with a word of prayer this morning. Lord God, Heavenly Father, we come before you with thanksgiving as we have been reminded in your word again, you are the only true God. There is no other. And we thank you also that you are a God of mercy and love and grace, who has sent your only begotten Son, who willingly and voluntarily went to the cross, taking with him all of our sin, all of our guilt, and all of our condemnation. And we thank you that through him, we have forgiveness and everlasting life. We thank you also for this opportunity to gather together and study your word. We pray your Holy Spirit's blessing upon our study this day, that we might continue to grow in our knowledge and understanding of that word, and especially also in your will for us as your children here. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Uh, we're going to start looking at the lessons again for next Sunday. For those that have been in this class before, one of the key places that I say as you come into church on Sunday and you're trying to figure out what is the main theme or the main focus for the day, usually you'll find that theme or that focus in the Gospel lesson and it will also be echoed then in the Old Testament lesson. So you should be able to read both the Old Testament and the Gospel lessons and find a connecting thread or a connecting theme there. On festival days, on special days, I think the next one that we will have will be the Reformation, uh, the Epistle lesson also lines up with that same theme. Although, as I'll point out today, I think simply by happenstance, all three readings kind of go together very nicely for next week, but it wasn't, I don't think, planned in that way. And another good thing to do when you come into church is, again, if you're searching for that theme, is read through the Collect. That's the prayer that ordinarily follows right after the confession and absolution. And the, the title for that prayer, as the name implies, kind of collects the main theme or themes for the day and expresses them in the words of a prayer. So with that, let's take a look, those of you who are here in front of me at the sheet that we have, and we'll read through the collect for the day. Almighty and everlasting God. So the collect always begins by addressing God, uh, and then we go right into the petitions. Many times you'll see right after we address God, we either acknowledge something about him, either a quality or characteristic that he has, 
such as full of love and mercy and truth, or uh, acknowledge something he has done. You've sent your only begotten son, something like that. We don't have that in this collect. It immediately jumps into the petitions. Give us an increase in faith, hope, and love, that receiving what you have promised, we may love what you have commanded. Through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. We'll take a look at that first part, an increase in faith, hope, and love. Those are the marks of, of course, the disciple, the one who follows Christ. And kind of keep that in mind as we move through the lessons, and we'll see that coming back once again. Today we're going to see a distinction between the righteous and the unrighteous, and we are going to see God referring to his people as his treasured possession. That includes all of us. So let's, I'm going to uh, switch up the order here. I know I put the gospel lesson first, but I want to do the Old Testament lesson first. And that's Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 6 through 9. And here in Deuteronomy, we, of course, have a uh, uh, Moses, after the people have been through the wilderness, after they have had the Mount Sinai experience, if you will, they're about to enter the promised land, and this is the second law, you might say, Deuteronomy. And Moses uh, has a big sermon at the beginning of Deuteronomy chapter 5. He reiterates the Ten Commandments for them. And now, as we're going to get into our text, is talking about what they should and should not do when they finally go into that land. Now, uh, Let's just read through these verses, and then we'll go back and talk about them. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who were on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know, therefore, that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. All right. So we begin, and you see the word for. Whenever you see the word for or the word therefore, to start a whole section of Scripture, what's a good idea to do? What happened before this? In other words, there's been something major said or taught prior to this, and then this kind of builds upon that. So with that in mind, let's uh, open our Bibles then to Deuteronomy 7 and just read through the first five verses, and we'll kind of get, get a running start then for our text, and I think it'll make even, uh, even be more clear as all. Okay, so remember now, they're about to go into the promised land. Is Moses going to enter the promised land himself physically? No. It's, uh, he's been God's leader all along to bring his people out of their slavery in Egypt. He personally is not going to be entering the promised land himself. But they're on the brink. They're about to go now. And he says to them, reading now at 
chapter 7, verses 1 through 5, when the Lord your God brings you into the land that you are entering to take possession of it and clears away many nations before you, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, seven nations more numerous and mighty than yourselves, and when the Lord your God gives them over to you and you defeat them, then you must devote them to complete destruction. Let's stop here for a moment. Are God's people going to go in and win the victory because they're a mighty military machine and they outnumber the, uh, all the ites that were named there? No. Why are they going to have the victory? Who's going to give it to them? God is, yes, absolutely. It's because of him. He gives them into their, into their hands, so to speak. Uh, you shall make no covenant with them and show no mercy to them. You shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons, for they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of, of the Lord would be kindled against you, and he would destroy you quickly. But thus shall you deal with them. You shall break down their altars and dash in pieces their pillars and chop down their asherim and burn their carved images with fire. The Asherim were wooden poles with the uh, false goddess, Asherah on them, a fertility goddess. So in general, what is God telling them to do? Go in there and take no prisoners. Wipe them out, wipe out especially their altars dedicated to their false gods. Wipe out the false worship. And do not intermarry. Now what's, is, is, what's wrong with intermarrying? What's God saying is gonna happen here? If they intermarry with the people there, what's going to come with the bargain? The false gods of those people. And God literally here predicts, unfortunately, what is going to happen. The people are going to go into that land, as we know from other uh, studies we have done, go into that land, not do what he asked. The intermarrying is going to take place. And unfortunately, God's people uh, are going to at times be even indistinguishable in some ways from the ones who worship the false gods around them, okay? So this is sort of the running start to our text. God says, you're going to go in, and when you go in, wipe them out. Don't leave any of their false gods, any of their altars dedicated to these false gods. Do not intermarry. In other words, there's to be no intermingling of false gods with me or with my people, okay? Now we go back to where we were in verse uh, 6. What's the reason? For, in other words, the reason for all this is you are a, are a people holy to the Lord your God. Now when you hear that word holy, what does that bring about? The idea if you are holy, you are what? sanctified and set apart. You are a people set apart. In other words, you're not like all the other people, especially with one in one regard. He says here, the Lord your God has chosen you to be a people. And that language of chosen, you are a chosen people, you are a called people is not a result that God looked at them and said, wow, look at that nation. I better select them. 
They are head and shoulders above the rest of the nations. That's what they might like to think. But look at what God is going to do now. If, if, they, have any, if they have any idea that that's, that's the case, you are to be a people for his treasured possession. Isn't that interesting that God calls this people his treasured possession? Keep this in mind because we're going to be taking a look at this uh, when it comes to the parables in the gospel lesson here. He is, the word is, he is, they are his treasured possession, his segalah, out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. So out of all the people he could have selected, he selects them. He chooses them. That's the only reason they are set apart for the Lord. And notice verse 7, it was not because you were more in number than any other people, and notice who does the acting here, that the Lord set his love on you. In other words, it literally means there, God set his heart on you. Uh, this, is, this is simply the act of God's grace, his undeserved, unmerited love. It's not because they were anything in particularly uh, special in any way. Not bigger in number, not stronger, not a great military superpower, just the opposite. It's simply because the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all the peoples, but it is because the Lord loves you. Anybody else, we think, can make that same statement? Who else can say, the only reason I am one of the Lord's is because he loves me and chose me? All of us, right? For the radio audience, people are raising their hands, nodding their heads. It's for all of us who can say the same, the very same thing. Now, by nature, we like to think there was something special about us, don't we? Don't we like to think, boy, you know, I'm a pretty good guy, or I'm a, I'm a pretty good person. You know, the Lord must have seen something in me way back there, you know. A little, I was a little twinkle in his eye at some point back there, and he loved me because of that, and he chose me because of that. Is that what Scripture says? No. It was nothing that we had. It was simply that God loved us. And we'll see in the epistle lesson, chose us before the beginning of time, before creation. And as, as uh, Deuteronomy says here, he set his heart on us. It's nothing that we brought to the table. There's nothing that, that distinguished us from anyone else. It is simply grace, undeserved, unmerited love. And going on there, uh, uh, verse 8, but it is because the Lord loves you, and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers. Now, what oath? When did God ever give an oath to the fathers before Moses? Where was the first time that God literally chose this people to be his own people? There might be a couple answers that you might give here. When was the first time God swore an oath to his people? Yeah, the one I think of most often is Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, right? God comes to him leave the land, go to a land that I'm going to show you. doesn't even tell him exactly where that is. And, but the important things, again, he says, I'm going to make of you a great nation. I'm going to make your name great. 
Your descendants will be more than the stars in the sky or the grains of sand on the beach. And the big thing, from your descendants, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And we, that's obviously a reference to Christ, who is going to come from the line of Abraham eventually, and all the nations of the earth will be blessed. So a couple things here. God is a loving God who simply chooses us and loves us, but notice there he also is a God who keeps his promise. He keeps the oath that he swore to their fathers. There are going to be times coming up where you could not blame God if he said, that's it. I'm out of here. I'm done with this people. I don't care what I promised. I'm done. Uh, They are going to be uh, going on after they get into this land so unfaithful, even to the point we think of, of engaging in child sacrifice to false gods of their own children. And at any point along the line, God, we, we would have certainly understood and said, well, we would have done the same thing, but not God. He is faithful to his oath, faithful to his covenant. He brings about that which he promises many times in spite of the actions of his people. And that's what he is going to do all the way through this this line, okay? So it's his love, it's his faithfulness. And then he says, it's the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand. Out from where? Out from Egypt. Now, does God have a mighty hand? Does God have a hand? No. Uh, He is a spirit. We worship him in spirit and truth. Uh, Sometimes the Bible will give God human-like qualities, and really it's so that we can help understand. But it's the mighty arm, and that's used in Scripture to denote power and strength. It's that mighty arm that he brought them out, redeemed them from their slavery, from the hand of the Pharaoh. And as a result, know, therefore, that the Lord your God is God. Same thing we heard in today's reading and in today's sermon here at St. Paul's. The faithful God, there he goes again, keeps covenant. So notice again how these two themes of faithfulness and love are brought throughout this text in the Old Testament, okay? Now, keep in mind this whole notion of God's people being his treasured possession, okay? The fact that he treasures us as his possession. Now let's go to the gospel lesson to Matthew 13. Matthew 13 is the, one of the great parable chapters in the scriptures, especially within Matthew. Uh, we get, we've seen as we've been reading uh, the, the gospel lessons on these Sundays, remember that we had the parable of the sower two weeks ago. And this Sunday, or last Sunday rather, this Sunday we have the wheat and the weeds. And that's today's gospel lesson. And we also, we didn't read it, but in there in between is the parable of the mustard seed. And next week, we are going to have a series of three parables here. Bing, bing, bing. They're short ones. And there are a couple different ways to interpret these. And I'll tell you, the uh, we'll end up, uh, I hope, where we're, uh, we as Lutherans interpret this. But let's read through. I want to read through the first two of these. The first one, starting at verse 44 of Matthew 13, is called the parable of the hidden treasure. And then the second one, verse 45, is the parable of the pearl, rather, of great value. So first of all, verse 44, 
The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys the field. Next one. And again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. So there are, there's a parallelism here in these two parables. Uh, the word again kind of gives that away in verse 45. It's like they're driving at the same thing. Now, bigger picture. Matthew 11 and 12 is when the opposition to Jesus really starts kicking in. And uh, you've got Matthew 12. Uh, John the Baptist sends the messengers to Jesus. And remember, they got a question for him. Remember what their question is? Are you the one who is to come, or should we expect another, right? And things just aren't looking real positive at this point. John is in prison. Jesus is having a lot of opposition. His own family members are there. In Mark, we, we get the word that they want to seize him and bring him home. They think he's delusional. And things just aren't going the way you would expect it if the Messiah is here and the kingdom of God is at hand. So Jesus tells the parable of the sower who goes out to sow seed. Jesus is that, is that sower sowing seed. And out of the four different places where that seed falls, how many of them actually produce a harvest? One out of the four. The one that falls on the path doesn't at all. The one that goes within the rocks, the rocky ground, doesn't at all. The one that goes within the thistles or the thorns, doesn't at all. But the one that does sink in and get root produces an abundant harvest. A hundredfold, sixtyfold, and thirtyfold, Jesus says. So in other words, look around. Not everyone is believing. Three out of four of those sowings don't produce the desired result. Only one does. That's what they're seeing around them. Then you've got the one today that was in the gospel lesson for today with the wheat and the weeds, right? And you've got the, the wheat that looks just like, there is a, there is a strain of, of a weed that looks just like wheat growing in the promised land. And finally, in the end, what happens? The, the weeds are pulled up, thrown into the fire right, where there's burning and gnashing of teeth, and the wheat is put into the barn. In other words, Jesus is saying, things are going to be all right in the end. I know it doesn't look like what you think it should look like right now, but in the end, things are going to be just. They are going to be right, okay? Now, to what we get today you've got two things that are kind of par parallel here in these parables. First of all, let's go back. What is the definition of a parable? There's probably a Sunday school definition that some of you learned, or maybe it was confirmation class. It is a earthly story with a heavenly meaning, right? That's the, that's the meaning or the uh, definition I guess a lot of us learned in Sunday school. A parable is a story that Jesus composes. He's not, this is not an actual historical event that happened. It's a story that he composes using earthly details 
things like we see here, a treasure hidden in a field and so on, in order to try and teach his hearers about life in the kingdom of God. What is life like in the kingdom of God? And many times it's in direct opposition to the way life is in this world. So he wants to teach his hearers, the disciples and us in this case, something about life in the kingdom of God, where God is ruling in the hearts and minds of people. So you've got two things that are parallel here. You've got someone who finds something. There's a guy who finds a treasure in a field, okay? It's, is this treasure valuable? Yeah, what does he do? He covers it up. Why is he covered up? So nobody else will find it. And he runs away, and what does he do? Buys the whole field, not for the, not for the sake of the field, but for the sake of treasure, yeah. Now you might say, well, that's kind of a strange. Well, back in Bible times, did they have safety deposit boxes at, at your local uh, bank? No. And sometimes when people would be traveling, especially away from home, what do you think they might do with their valuables? Bury them in the backyard somewhere. Uh, I've always heard stories about people that uh, have all kinds of money in a tin can in the back of their house somewhere, and only they know where it is. You ever hear people like that? Well, this was not uh, uncommon in Bible times, so it would not be uncommon, and maybe the ground was a little disturbed there, and the guy finds the treasure, whoa, and covers it back up so that nobody else can find it, goes and buys the whole field, okay? Then the second one, you've got a woman uh, who is... Uh, searching, a merchant, rather, I'm sorry, a merchant who is searching for fine pearls, and this merchant finds what? Only one pearl, but of great value again, okay? So that again, went and sold all that he had and bought it. So you've got these two parallel parables. Someone is searching for something, Someone finds something of great value. It's of such great value that they go and sell everything that they have so that they can have it. Okay? All right. Let me give you the two ways. I'm going to give you the way I, I don't like first, and then I'll give you the way I like second. And I think, uh, well, I should say I don't think, I am supported in this. Uh, by uh, One of the best commentaries sets on Matthew is that done by Dr. Jeffrey Gibbs available from Concordia Publishing House, and I know he's, he's with this interpretation as well. Here's the one interpretation, that the thing that's of great value is the kingdom of God, and that we, the people, are the ones that are searching for this great kingdom of God, and that when we find it, it is of such great value that it should eclipse everything else in our life, that we should sacrifice everything else in, of importance for this kingdom of God. It is the, the kingdom of God then is the treasure in the field. The kingdom of God is the pearl of great price. We are disciples when we realize that that kingdom is the greatest of the greatest value and it should dwarf everything else in our life. Nothing else should be more important and we should sacrifice all for that kingdom, okay? I think that's an accurate description of the, what is sometimes referred to as the discipleship interpretation of this parable. Okay? 
There's uh, the one that I favor, and I think most Lutheran scholars do, and not many be a scholar, but Lutherans do, and that is what might be called the Christological interpretation of this parable. Who is the one searching in these two parables? Who is the guy who is finding the treasure? Who is the merchant searching for the great pearl? Jesus. What is the treasure that he finds? What is the pearl that he finds? All of us. What is the selling of everything that he has? His life on the cross. Now, the reason that I had us look at the Old Testament lesson first is what does God call his people in Deuteronomy chapter 7? His treasured possession, right? So this fits with that interpretation. And there's a couple other spots. Let's take a look, first of all, at Exodus 19, verse 5. Exodus 19, verse 5. Okay, and we'll see a very parallel kind of construction here. Exodus 19, verse 5. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be what? My treasured possession. That's that same Hebrew word, segulah, among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Okay? So there, even before, uh, in, in Exodus 19, God refers to his people as a treasured possession. Let's look at just one more, Malachi uh, 3. Malachi 3. And we want to look at verses 16 through 18 of Malachi 3. Malachi 3, very, very end of our Old Testament. So starting at verse 16 of Malachi 3. Then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. The Lord paid attention and heard them. And a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in the day when I make up my treasured possession, and I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. Then once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between the one who serves and the one who does not serve him. So here again, there's kind of an irony in this Malachi verse, but here again, God says, you are my treasured possession, and he will spare his treasured possession as a man spares his son. Now, what's the irony here? Who did not spare his own son? The God who is speaking these words. Uh, did not even spare his beloved son, but instead delivered him up for us. So the point here is, and this is the interpretation of these two parables that, that we definitely prefer, that... The parables are not talking about what we, as people, are to do. They are talking about what God, in and through his Son, Jesus Christ, 
is doing right at that time, and in our case, has done for us already. He has come and searched for. Remember, he said he came to seek and seek the lost, right? He came to seek and save that which was lost. So he came. He searched for the lost. He found us. He sold everything he had. And as a result, we who were poor are rich. And we won't spend a lot of time on it now, but when you stop and think about it, how does it make you feel that God refers to you as his treasured possession? He refers to you as the treasure that he would sell all to possess, or the pearl that is so valuable to him that he would sell everything he had, namely his own son, on the cross for you. There's, there's, it's just a wonderful expression of God's love for us. And, you know, if you ever, you know, we all have those days, I guess, where, you know, gosh, does God still love me? Why is this happening in my life? And so on. Well, there's no better expression of his love for us than right here, that we are his treasured possession and that he sacrificed all for us. So that's the interpretation of this, the, these two parallel parables that we definitely prefer. In any of the kingdom parables, it's not about what we're doing. It's about what God is doing in and through Christ. Okay? Then we get another parable thrown in. And this one is, I think, fairly easy, easily understood. But it's of a little different nature now. So let's, let's take a look. This is the parable of the net or the parable of the dragnet, sometimes referred to. So uh, again, the uh, kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. When it was full, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into containers, but threw away the bad. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Okay, so we switch images here. No more searching for anything in, in, a, in that sense or finding anything greatly valuable. But they are uh, dragging along a fish net here, and they're catching fish of all kinds. No distinction made. They're just catching the fish, bringing them on board, okay? And we know a little bit later on in the parable that there are good fish and there are, in fact, that word actually means stinking, rotten fish. Uh, and, and so you've got them all there in the net. They're all being caught and they're all being brought on board the ship. And then there is a sorting process that happens, isn't there? And the so-called good fish are separated from the rotten fish. And the rotten, stinking fish are thrown into a fire, right, where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, so let's, let's put all this together. Now, remember, this is kind of parallel to the parable of the wheat and the weeds, right? So we've got all these fish in the boat. They're all fish. What is the sort of... We might say, what is this action, what, what is this fishing net supposed to represent, or we could think of it representing today? 
all the people in the world and those who are caught into the, we see around us, the church as well. So even if there are some good fish, are there, are there, um, are there possibly some people in the visible church that don't believe in Christ? Yeah, unfortunately, I, we can't look into a person's heart and know whether or not they truly believe in Jesus Christ or whether they are just going through the motions. A uh, little, little catechism review here for you. The church we see around us, if I want to say, is someone a member of St. Paul's Lutheran Church, I could go and on our little electronic system and put their name up there, and there it would be. We call that church the visible church. I can see it. It's visible to me. Now, the, the church truly comprised of those who are believers in Jesus Christ, we then call the invisible church. Invisible because I can't see that necessarily. I can't, as I said, I can't look into someone's heart. I can't read their mind. But the invisible church is the church of all believers in Jesus Christ. And might there be members of the invisible church that are not members of a visible church? Yeah, there could be. There could be. Just like there are uh, people within the visible church that unfortunately may not be members of the invisible church. Okay? Now, just like Jesus did not want the, uh, in the other parable, the wheat and the weeds this morning, did not want them to go out and rip up the weeds because they might rip up some wheat, so also here in this parable, they bring all the fish on board. But notice there is a sorting out process that takes place. And you're either a good fish or a rotten fish. You're either wheat or your weeds. And this, this uh, verse near the end here, um, verse 48, or verse 49, So it will be at the end of the age, the angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth is virtually a direct repeat of verse 42 with what's going to happen with the weeds on the last day. So what is the sorting out? It is what? Judgment day. Judgment day. Where there will be, you, you notice there, there's no in-between. There's no, you know, for all people that think that God kind of grades on a curve, and, you know, as long as I'm pretty good, no. You're either, you're either a good fish or a rotten fish. You're either wheat or you're weeds. There's no kind of in-between. There's no hybrid in-between. You're either one or the other. But again, God is saying to his people, in effect here, I know things don't look like they should with the Son of Man on this earth and walking around. There's so much opposition. John the Baptist is in prison, but don't worry. The weeds and the wheat are growing together for now. The bad fish and the good fish are together for now. But on the last day, things will be sorted out there will be justice, and things are going to be fine for God's people. And in that sense, these parables, uh, I guess you could take them a couple different ways. On the one hand, for God's people, what's the effect of these parables? In the end, what? 
we're okay. And, and so they're, in that way, they're comforting. In other words, God's, as we saw in the Old Testament, God is faithful to his promises. He will keep them. He loves us. We are his treasured possession. On the other hand, I hope that parables like this cause us to remember that God has given us a mission here, not just to be about ourselves, but especially to be about those who are at this point. This is where parables kind of fall down, because you can't change from a weed into a wheat, where uh, in life you can change from a non-believer to a believer. To be about the business that God has given to us, because this is serious business. And you know, sometimes you'll run across people who will say, that in effect Jesus was nothing but love, he was all love, he never said anything harsh. Well, here's two verses right here where he talks about weeping and gnashing of teeth, a fiery furnace. Uh, these are harsh words. And uh, so again, I hope this, we keep this in mind that uh, there are definitely people, unfortunately at this point, uh, who are on the bad side of this equation, okay? Now, one more. New and old treasures. And this is maybe a little more obscure, but I think we can explain this one. Verse 51. Have you understood all these things? In other words, all the parables that I've been telling you, have you understood them? They said to him, yes. Well, he explained two of them for him, <laughs> didn't he? And uh, so I actually explained three of them. Uh, when you include the sower, the wheat, and the weeds, and this one. So they get it. He, they say yes. Uh, we hope they did anyway. Now, verse 52, And he said to them, Therefore, every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who brings out of his treasure what is new and what is old. Let's figure this out. A scribe would be someone who is skilled in the interpretation of which testament at this point? Old Testament, right? Uh, expert on the interpretation of God's law, expert on its content, certainly, and would have been an expert in what is old, what has already existed. Now, being trained for the kingdom of heaven is following Jesus' teaching. These teachings like he's just been doing here in the parables. So what Jesus is in effect saying here is that these disciples now are like a scribe who both know the Old Testament, and Jesus, you remember, said he didn't come to do away with the law and the prophets, but to fulfill them. So he's not overthrowing what they had, he's fulfilling it, but he's adding something new in a sense that he is the Messiah, he is the one whom God sent. And so the person who both understands the old and understands the kingdom of God, the way Jesus is teaching it, is like the, the person who brings out of his treasure something old, which would have been the Old Testament, the Law and the Prophets, and something new, which is what Jesus is teaching, okay? It's kind of a hard one, it's a little more obscure, but in other words, the person who knows all of that, what has been through the Old Testament, the Law and the Prophets, and now also, like they said, they understood these things, they're like someone who brings out treasure, and they've got old treasure, which they still value very, very much, and they have new treasure, okay? And so that's what he's in effect saying. These disciples 
are just like that. They understand the oath that God swore to Abraham back in Genesis 12. They understand the promise of a Savior way back in Genesis 3.15. Jesus didn't come to do away with any of that. He built on top of it. Okay? All right. So there is the Old Testament and the gospel lesson for next week. Um, I'm not sure what Pastor Thompson is going to be preaching on. I'm going to be preaching on this idea of the treasured possession, that we are the treasured possession of God. Okay? All right. Now, we got 10 minutes left, according to my watch. So let's take a look at the epistle lesson. And as I say, this is one of those, I think by accident times, that they all kind of go together. I don't think it's not a festival Sunday next Sunday, but you again get this idea of God's grace coming through, his undeserved love. Romans 8, and notice we're going through in Church on Sundays a series uh, connecting very important parts of Romans as we go through these weeks. Let's read through the whole thing, then we'll go back and take it apart. So we're going to look at Romans 8, 28 uh, through 39. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised is at the right hand of God, who intercedes is, in, is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is for many people I know one of their favorite sections of Scripture, and rightly so. Let's go right back, and we'll uh, do as much as we can anyway in this time that's left. And so if we had the time, we'd go back and read what came before this. We don't have the time, so we won't. We know that for those who love God. Now, we love God because what? He first loved us. Very good. I hope everybody over the radio heard that great response here in unison. We love only because he first loved us. So Paul is not setting us up here again as people who in and of ourselves have this great quality that we above all people love God. No. God came to us, called us, 
We love him. And so this kind of sets up now everything that's going to follow. In other words, from here all the way through verse 39, these things are true for those who love God. And they love God simply because God first loved us and called us. All things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Does Paul say there that all things are good? No. In fact, uh, Paul in other places will certainly acknowledge that there is evil in this world. And God allows evil things at times to occur, doesn't he? Uh, you know, after 9-11, that was a big question a lot of people were asking, how would or how could God allow something like that to happen? So Paul is not saying here that all things are good. And secondly, is Paul necessarily implying here that all, God is going to work through all things to make us prosperous, wealthy, healthy, and successful in this world? No. Unfortunately, you will find some that are called prosperous who will, this, they, they will interpret it exactly that way. That God works through all things for your good, and in typical Western fashion, that means, you know, you're going to have all kinds of wealth, a great house, a great career. You're never going to have a problem in the world. That's not what Paul is saying here. In fact, it's almost just the opposite. It's that God works, uh, God works together for uh, good in, in all things. Okay? Uh, all things work together for good. Now, when we're saying good here, what's the good that we're referring to? If it's not material goodness and wealth and health and prosperity, what's the good that we are referring to? His will. And that will is that we come to him and internally come to him, right? That, so that good purpose is that his will is going to be accomplished. That is our spiritual welfare, our eternal life. And remember, this does not mean we're never going to have a problem or a care in this world. In fact, there are times where it seems like, doesn't it, that Christians have even more to bear, it seems, than the person next door who, uh, you know, uh, does not believe, never goes to church, uh, has no concept of God or certainly of Christ. So it's not that we're not going to have problems, but even in the midst of all things, God is at work. And that's where we have to keep that faith in the promises of God. Sometimes we will see it, and sometimes we will not see it. Uh, there have been times in my life where, uh, maybe you've had these experiences as well, that when some, in the midst of something happening, I could not see how God could possibly allow this to happen or bring anything good out of this. And only later, years down the road, you look back and you see what happened, something that at the time you never could have predicted, never would have thought. But again, God works for good in all. Okay, And notice there, for those who are called according to his purpose, and again, that purpose is that we are called from darkness to light and that we know him. Now, we only, we've got five minutes. He foreknew us. He knew us before the foundation of the world okay, and predestined us. 
Now, the knowing here, the word for know here in the Greek is a, a more intimate knowing. It's not just knowing about someone. It's a more intimate knowing. And those whom he foreknew, he also, as Paul says, they're predestined. And the, in the original language, it means he sort of drew a circle around. He circumscribed around. Now, let me just really quickly... Is it, the, is it that God foreknew, I'll just use myself as an example, it's an easy example. Is it that God foreknew me before the foundation of the world and said, huh, that Glenn Thomas is, gonna, is really a special guy. We better, we, I better choose him, right? <laughs> People are laughing, I'm not sure why. But um, uh, no, it is not because of anything in us. Is it even that he foresaw that you were going to believe and because you were going to believe chose you? No. It is simply grace. It is simply grace. No other reason. And he did not do this. He does not uh, put this into effect or bring this about apart from Jesus Christ, word and sacrament. Okay? So it's not as though God is running one line over here with predestination and running another line over here when it comes to word and sacrament. They are all working together. Now, this is one of those points where we as Lutherans have to say, we are not too proud to say, I don't understand then, if, if God desires that none should, be, none should be lost and all should be saved, and if God predestined us to salvation, and we see the results of that in our lives, what's the big question that we just cannot answer? Why not, why are not all people saved? In other words, or stated negatively, why is anyone lost? And we have to say, we will just leave that as it is. We, we, we don't venture into answering that question. Now, do we say that God predestined some and then he predestined others to damnation? No. The Reformed would teach that because they want it all to be logical, and it's a nice, neat explanation. The only problem with that is, number one, well, there's two problems. Number one, there's no Scripture passage to support it. But number two, it actually goes against what Scripture says, that God desires none to perish, but all to repent and come to the knowledge of the truth and be saved. So we, the, the Reformed, uh, Zwingli, Calvin, etc., would, would tie into that, but not us as Lutherans. So we leave that, and, and by the way, we should say, this is meant to be a doctrine of comfort for us. That way before the foundation of the world, God foreknew us and, and, and put a circle around us and predestined us or circumscribed us to salvation. Okay? And notice there, there's sort of a, a, almost a rhythm there that in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers or the most preeminent among the rest of us. But here comes that rhythm. Those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he justified. What does it mean to be justified? Declared to be righteous in the sight of God. Okay, it's a legal term. God uh, declares you to be righteous apart from all of your sin. So he justified, and those whom he justified, he glorified. When will we be glorified, finally, ultimately? On the last day, yeah, on Judgment Day, when Christ returns 
and we get a glorified body, no longer any impacts of sin, in fact, no longer any sin around us or in our existence. And we can't, can't wait for that day, all right? All right, we're getting to the end of our time here. Remember, though, next week, key words, treasured possession. That's what we are in God's eyes, so much so that he would sell everything he had, so to speak, in that his son would, would suffer and surrender everything he had, namely his life, for each one of us. All right? Let's close then with the benediction. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be and abide with you all. Amen.